All right, good morning. Uh, kids, you're dismissed to go to class if you want to do that. I got a few announcements for us this morning. It's that time of year where we start thinking about uh, people who are graduating. So on April the 30th, we're going to have, during our service, so this will be part of our worship gathering, a graduation celebration. Uh, Later that evening is our next family reunion, so please make sure you uh, RSVP to that so we know how much food to prepare. Um, So April 30th is going to be a big day in the life of the branch. Excited about that. Uh, And this one is a ways out, but we want to go ahead and put it on your radar. Um, On May 14th, we're going to do family dedication. Uh, we're aware that that's Mother's Day, and we see some symbolic uh, beauty there, right? But on May the 14th, we're going to do family dedication. Really what that means is uh, families who've had uh, new babies in their life. We have one that has never been dedicated, so y'all pray especially for her. Uh, Berkeley, she is too, so we'll probably do have her up here. Uh, she thinks she owns the place. Um, and then lastly, uh, with Easter being next week, it's a this week is really as we enter into uh, the Passion Week, and today begins that with Palm Sunday. Um, we are doing our baptisms uh, as part of our worship gathering, and uh, I've had the chance, really the privilege, to talk to those this week who are going to be baptized, and so amazing stories of, of God's work in people's lives. And uh, we want to celebrate that together, and so we hope you'll be here. Uh, parents, just FYI, um, child care will only be for uh, birth through four. So the older class will stay in here. That's intentional. We want them to be a part of our Easter worship service. So um, anyways, let's dive in. Exodus chapter 26. We have a lot to cover today. Um, We're going to knock out all of chapter 26. I had somebody ask me um, this week when we're going to be done with Exodus. They've really been enjoying it, I'm sure, but they were asking when we would be done. And I said when we get to chapter 40. So... um, we are, uh, we are scheduled to be in chapter 40 by the end of the summer. So sometime in August, uh, we will have made our way through uh, what is a longer book, a very important book uh, for us. And so I hope that this series has been fruitful. Uh, it certainly has for me, just even the reminders, the repetition, uh, even in passages like today, where a lot of my Christian life, I would come to a passage like this one and try to breeze past it to check off my reading list, right? And when we slow down and absorb what God is doing here, uh, the beauty is great. And I hope we see that together today. So uh, we do have a lot to cover, so bear with me as we read. Um, but I do want to uh, draw our attention real quick uh, to the to main point before I read, because I want you to focus on the main point as we read through what is going to be a lot of details. And I think the primary question that we have to ask is, yes, what does it say? What does it mean? But ultimately... The question we have to ask is, how does it point us to Jesus? And so that's the primary goal today. We know that they've just come out of Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness, and God has come to dwell with them in a tent known as the tabernacle. Okay? What I love about the, the idea of the tent, our church, all of it, the entire, all of the stuff except for the chairs, fits into a 16-foot trailer. Um, so it's kind of like that, right? They had this thing. It was portable. They had to move it around the wilderness as God was drawing them into uh, the promised land in Israel. And so we are much like them, okay? Uh, if we can stay away from the golden calf, we'll be doing good, all right? But there are a lot of details here, and I don't want us to miss the point that God is extremely concerned with how his people worship him, okay? This, even though it's a lot of detail, 
is a passage on worship. We've been here now for a few weeks as we're, we've been talking through the building of the tabernacle. Last week we had the lampstand and the table for bread. The week before that we had the Ark of the Covenant. And what I want you to see here is that we're, we're starting from the inside and we're working our way out. Right? And this is exactly what God does. Right? He starts on the inside and he works his way out. We can't produce fruit in our life until our lives have been changed forever through the gospel. But the tabernacle, and here's the idea, the tabernacle was the dwelling place of God on earth. Okay? The tabernacle is the dwelling place of God on earth. In essence, it was heaven on earth. Okay? So let's, let's read uh, Exodus 26. If you're new here, um, we've been in Exodus. I'm sure you could pick that up by, then, by now, but we've been here since chapter 1, and we'll be here until chapter 40. Okay? So I'm going to read it all at once. All right? So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That was a joke. Uh, I actually, that, I worked that one in too. I'm glad it went over well. I wasn't sure yesterday. I almost took it out. So uh, thank you for that. I feel really good now. Um, all right. Exodus, Exodus 26, verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim, skillfully worked into them, the length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain, four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another. And you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. Verse 7. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains you shall make. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves, and six curtains by themselves. And the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set, and fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. Verse 11. You shall make fifty clasps of bronze, and put the clasps into the loops, and couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent the half curtain that remains shall hang over the back of the tabernacle, and the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, that the cubit is on one side and the cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle, on this side and that side to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. Verse 15. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood, Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, twenty frames for the south side, and forty bases of silver you shall make under the twenty frames, two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, twenty frames." And there are 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle, westward, you shall make six frames, and you shall make two frames for, 
for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separate underneath or beneath, but joined at the top at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them. They shall form the two corners. And there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame and two bases under another frame. Verse 26, we're getting close. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar, halfway up the frames, shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars. And you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain." And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia, overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil, this is important, and you shall hang the veil from the class and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place, and you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle, opposite the table, and you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen, verse 36, for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. You shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold, and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. That is the direction for the tabernacle. All right, are we okay? Um, wouldn't you know, so I've, been, uh, I've had a severe allergy attacks this week, if you can't hear it in my voice, and throughout the week I've been getting these like chronic coughing attacks. I am very thankful that Lord answered my prayer and it didn't happen like somewhere in the middle here. I know we have a lot left to do uh, this morning, but if you want to pray, you can pray that I don't get a tickle in my throat, okay? So uh, we do have a couple of things, a couple of the pictures that we showed last week. Um, Dakota, if you want to throw those up there, I want to just remind you of these. Um, one is going to be the tabernacle with the court, which the court is going to come next week, okay? The tabernacle being the building kind of on the northern side of the photo there, okay? Uh, the details for this building, if you want to go to the next one and kind of zoom in on it, this is the tabernacle, right? So last week we saw that the table for bread of the presence is on the, on the one side and the lampstands on the other, and then back behind the middle curtain is the Ark of the Covenant, okay? So for us, though, what does it mean? And I think the, the answer is, what is into what is the tabernacle really is, how is this pointing us ultimately to Jesus, okay? In the details with which they had to make this, how does that point us to Jesus? And I think that it's here where we see that God has come to dwell with his people. One of the interesting things that we read about the tabernacle is that there was very, very limited access to the tabernacle, okay? Only the priests were allowed in, and only the high priest was allowed into the most holy place, which is where the Ark of the Covenant is, okay? So the priests would come in, and they're only allowed to come in when they had a duty to perform. They couldn't, like, come and hang out, you know, some churches have green rooms, you know, where the, like, the celebrity guys will sit in and like, get mic'd up and make up and all that stuff, and they get real cute. We don't have one of those. Um, if you want to start praying for one, we take one um, so I could look nicer. But um, it's, it's not that, 
okay? So the, the priests were only allowed to come in when they had work to do. And they were only allowed, the high priest was only allowed to go in to the most holy place once a year. Listen to what Phil Riken says here. He says, only the priests could enter, and only when they had some priestly duty to perform. And as soon as they entered, they were confronted with another curtain, which is the one in the middle, okay? This is the one that I want to draw our attention to throughout the morning. The veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. According to the Jewish Talmud, which, just for the record, we're not quoting as inerrant scripture, okay? We're just using it for historical basis, all right? According to the Jewish Talmud, this veil was four inches thick and took more than a hundred priests to move. A hundred. This would be like, guys, if we had a trailer with no truck, okay? And we had to get all the people in the room, and we were lifting the trailer. Like, this is a significant, weighty piece, because this is what separates God's presence from God's people, okay? And they had to, there had to be atonement. There had to be a sacrifice. It had to be a blood sacrifice in order for them to be drawn into the presence of God. The significance of the curtain, uh, I remember in college, well, I was in high school. I just graduated from high school, and I was going to college. Um, and I, got a, I get a call from my future roommate. Right? Well, really, it was my roommate's mother. Um, who was very concerned about a shower curtain, okay? It was, it was a big thing. Like, we had to have matching bed sheets, which is super weird uh, when you're 18 years old and you're supposed to be an athlete. Um, we didn't, though, for the record. We drew the line hard, and they're like, we'll have a cute shower curtain, okay? But for us, like, we think of curtains. We think of a veil. We think of different things, but we don't think of something of this magnitude, okay? Four inches thick is a thick curtain, and the detail, the cherubim, was to point them back to Eden, right? If you remember in Genesis 3, what are the cherubim doing? Once sin enters the world and Adam and Eve are kicked out, the cherubim are there and they're guarding Eden. They're not allowed back in. And so God has, he puts the detail on the veil, on the curtain, to remind them that eventually they will be welcomed back in. Through a sacrifice, they would be welcomed back in. What, what kind of... Uh, garments, what kind of thread are they using? It's very elaborate, but they're using ram skins. They're using goat's hair, right? All to remind them of the sacrifices that they would have to bring to atone themselves back into the presence of God. But no one enters except for the priests, all right? The, the veil is a big deal, all right? So he does come, God comes and dwells with his people and, and he maintains this limited access. So how do we enter the presence of God? We read from Psalm 15. I'm going to read it again because I think it's a beautiful psalm. This is Psalm of David. It says this, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? This is tabernacle. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. So there are two ways to enter into the presence of God. One is to be that. One is to be perfect. That's not you. That's not me either. Okay? That's not us. 
We are not perfect. The other way, and we can strive for it, okay? We can work hard for it. But it's, you'll never achieve perfection, not in the sight of God. You may make all A's, A pluses. You may graduate with something higher than a 4.0, which what is the point? You cannot work your way back into the presence of God. The Israelites tried it. Adam and Eve tried it. God's people have constantly been trying to get back into Eden, and yet there the cherubim are waiting to guard the presence of God, just like the veil in the temple. The other way, praise God, there's another way, is by means of a blood sacrifice. And for a long time, that meant animals, it meant goats, it meant rams, depending on what was going on and the type of uh, festival or feast that was happening. But not for us. Not for us. Listen to what John uh, chapter 1, verse 14 says, because I think the real question is not what does the tabernacle look like, although we want to know. But what does it mean? John 1, 14 says this, the Word became flesh. By the way, the, if, if, you know, if you know this, you know this, but the Word is capital W. It's not just a word like we are speaking words. It is the Word, capital W, meaning Jesus. The Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Do you know it? Full of grace and full of truth. I don't like to do this because it feels pretentious at times, but this is an important one to do it, so bear with me. Um, when you go to seminary, one of the prerequisites that you do, depending on your degree, is you take languages that you don't understand, okay? So we take Greek and you take Hebrew. Uh, I really struggled in Greek because it was a lot like English, and I'm not very good at English grammar, okay? So don't hate me on that. But the Greek word translated here for dwelt is eskinosin, okay? Which comes from the Greek word for tabernacle, skene. So when it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, what he's saying is the Word became flesh and tabernacled with us. Jesus is the better tabernacle. So literally the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. John was calling us back to remember the tabernacle in great detail. Because for Christ to be the true and living and perfect sacrifice, there had to be great detail. He had to be spotless. He had to be sinless. Later in uh, Matthew 27, this is, uh, today's Palm Sunday, so I don't want to breeze by that. Um, it's a great day to study Exodus 26, but um, Palm Sunday is this moment, right? It's the beginning of the end for Jesus. And, and we're no, it's known as the triumphal entry, but it seems so humiliating, right? As he straps onto a donkey and he rides into town, and, and people who are eventually going to kill him lay branches down in, in, a, in a form of idol worship because they don't truly trust him. Not yet they don't. Because for him, for them, they're just, he's just a magic worker. He's just doing good in the world. Or as what we like to say is Jesus is just a good moral teacher. But a week later, he'd be crucified. And then he would resurrect. He would live again. And in his living again, death died. I don't want to give too much of my sermon next week. I'm excited about it. I hope you are too. Okay? But what we see in Matthew 27, Jesus cries out. This is Matthew 27, verse 50. Back to the veil. Jesus cried out again, and with a loud voice, he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. The four-inch thick, hundred priests needed to carry it, was torn. 
from the top to the bottom. That's not how we rip things, not when they're high. We've got to start at the bottom and try to work our way up. But from the top to the bottom, it was torn in two. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. It would then go on to say that the, the saints from old were given new life. And in that moment, the faith that Moses was pointing to was actualized. It was made real. As Jesus gives up his spirit, the veil, the curtain, is torn. Man couldn't tear it. We know that. Not if a hundred people were pulling on it. It's not going to tear. The veil is what separated people from the people of God from the presence of God. I got another Riken quote for you. He says this. He says, The veil that for more than a millennium, a millennium, had separated God's people from God's presence had parted. Now the way was open for the priests and indeed for the whole human race to meet with God in the most holy place. That's you and me, by the way. It is not surprising to learn from the book of Acts, I'm continuing with Riken, that after Jesus ascended to heaven, it says this in Acts 6, a great many priests became obedient to the faith. Because for their entire life, their entire career as a priest, they looked to the veil as what separates them from God. Now, let's be really clear. God's character, his nature wasn't different because there was a veil. He's still omnipresent. So what that means is he is everywhere at one time, okay? Now, here's where that's beautiful, for even for the Israelites, is in the tabernacle, his, his, his presence was manifest, right? It was, it was different than it was everywhere else in the world because he was drawing his people into himself, and yet he was there, but he was also out in the desert with them, Okay? So just like for us, God is with us no matter where we are. The veil is torn so that we can come near. This is the point of the tabernacle. Eventually another would come, a perfect sacrifice. And in his dying, the separation between God and his people would be removed forever. Hello. From the beginning of this Series in Exodus, this is what we've been longing for. This is the climax. Hebrews, I've got a Hebrews chapter 9, there's a couple verses I want us to draw our attention as it helps bring clarity to what is happening here. He says in verse 12, he entered, speaking of Jesus, once, only once, for all, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats, or the blood of calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Here's what's happening in the tabernacle. Every time they would come in with the sacrifice, it was temporary. Because here's what happens. Let's put it in the context of our church, okay? We have the veil. It's separating. Okay, I'm, I'm back here, right? You know, let's be real, okay? And you bring a sacrifice. We kill the animal. And all of a sudden, your sin's atoned for. And you walk out that door, you got to come right back. Because somebody's trying to take a left turn at the stop sign. Or somebody spilled their coffee. Or you slammed your finger in the trailer door. I've done that, okay? But you immediately have to come back in, and now we need a new sacrifice. That's over. When the veil is torn, it's an eternal 
redemption. And it's secured forever. Later in Hebrews 9, verse 24, it says this, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands. It's a tabernacle. Which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The tabernacle was a shadow. It was a copy that points us to Jesus, the great high priest, who enters into the presence of God on our behalf as a perfect atonement for our sin. So I can't think of a better passage for us to be walking through as we, as we run headlong into Easter weekend. And let's don't miss Friday. Friday's when the veil was torn. Sunday comes. I've got it on the screen, Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 14 through 16, this is the passage in Hebrews where Jesus is identified as the great high priest. It says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence. Have you ever lacked confidence in your faith? Yeah. Our confidence isn't in ourselves. It's not in our story. It's not in what we do or what we don't do, but it's in the finished work of Christ. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence. We don't have to be fearful anymore. We don't have to be shameful anymore. There's no, we don't have to doubt anymore. We can hold our heads high and we walk. We could skip into the presence of God because there stands Jesus, our great high priest. We've been made righteous through his blood once and for all. No more sacrifice. Revelation 21 verse 3, this is just a great reminder John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, listen, and they will be his people. This is the last chapter of our Bible. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The presence they felt, the presence that we experience in the garden is renewed. And we will finally feel it as Christ comes in the consummation and makes all things new. Later in <clears throat> Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires Take the water of life without price. This is, this is the beauty of the Christian story. This is it. <coughs> Sorry, I should have turned that off. <coughs> We're going downhill. This is beautiful. Let's, let's reframe it into our own narrative, into our own stories. If you're really screwed up, come. If you've been running from God, come. If you've been pretending, faking, and this is the one I think is dangerous. Come. If you've never trusted him, come. All of this, all of it, 
points us to the gospel. We can't re-enter Eden on our own. We had to have a better high priest who would come to provide an eternal way back into the presence of God. Would you come? So every week we go to the table because the veil is torn. Never to be re-sown. It's not going to be re-knitted together. There's never going to be a separation between God and his people as long as Christ is who he says he is. If he's not, then we're still waiting for another Savior. But I believe that he is. In fact, I know that he is. Faith, which is a gift, makes us see the things that are unseen. Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, came to dwell among us. No longer in a fancy tent, but in our lives, intimately, personally. And here's what's beautiful about that, is you don't have to wash yourself before you come in. He does the washing for you. Amen? As we go to the table this morning, I, I hope that these words, yes, it's a lot of detail. The detail has a purpose. And here's the purpose, that God dwells with his people. So as you go to the table, would you be reminded that God is with us? Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this morning. We're thankful for a time to study your text, to study your word, the living word, capital W. God, I pray uh, for those families who are adventuring on spring break this week that you would provide safety for them. I let them relax, rest well. Um, pray for my family as we do that. God, I pray for our students today as they start preparing for finals in the end of a rigorous school year. I pray most of all that you would help us to rest well in the fact that you have come to tabernacle with us. That the veil is torn, is torn for good. And now we can stand confidently in your presence. So I pray now Lord, for those who may be thirsty that they would find drink, that those who may be hungry would find food, that those who are lonely would find friendship. Those who are needy would be satisfied. So would you do that now as we go to the table? Would you satisfy our souls? We thank you. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of our team will be over to the side if you want.